So you also might be looking at your uh, bulletin insert and looking at the, the number of chapters that we have this morning to go over. And you might be thinking, Frank, that's a lot. <laughs> we have five chapters this morning. Um, so strap in, we're going to read all of it. No, we, we would be here like till three if we read all of it. So um, just be mindful that we're going to hit the highlights. I'm going to try to read representative um, verses this morning, give us a sort of 30,000 foot view of not only the five chapters that we have this morning, but also the book as whole, uh, the whole book, because we have come to the end of our series in Jeremiah. It's been 11 months since we started it, 39 weeks in, uh, in this book. It's been very heavy. The passages have not been particularly cheerful, um, but we've come to the end, and uh, we'll be taking three weeks to talk about sort of um, the church over the next three weeks after this, and then we'll be going into Mark after that, um, the Gospel of Mark, that is. Um, and those will be a little bit more cheerful because we get to look at the life of Jesus, which is going to be awesome. So let's turn our attention to Jeremiah uh, chapters 48 all the way through 52. Be prepared to jump through, um, through your Bibles if you're following on, along in your Bibles. I've tried to get all of the, the, the verses into your bulletin insert there for you to reference quickly as well. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we get a picture of who you are and the great things that you have done. And so we come this morning eager to hear from you, and so we ask that you would enliven our spirits, that you would sanctify us through these chapters in Jeremiah, and that you would transform us more into your likeness. And we pray these things in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So before we get into things, because there's a lot of ground to cover, I want to map out where we're going. Um, so just so that you can keep the overall picture in mind. We generally get two big things in the prophets uh, of the Old Testament. They do sort of two, they have two big roles. The first is they pronounce warnings and judgments upon the people for sin and for breaking the covenant that they had with the Lord. And the second thing is that they herald and sort of hint at the coming of a new covenant, one of grace and of salvation. And so this morning, we'll be looking at both of these things, these two themes, first, judgment and, and the Lord's vengeance against sin, and the second, the Lord's grace. So let's sort of dive right in uh, with vengeance. Um, so the Lord's vengeance. And what better way to start uh, talking about vengeance than with one of the biggest movies of all time and a youth group favorite, Avengers Endgame, right? For those of you that haven't seen it, don't worry. I will try my best to not spoil it because it's a fantastic movie. Um, but the whole movie is sort of centered around this idea of vengeance. Uh, even the title is a form of the word vengeance. I mean, come on, what do you expect it's going to be about? It's titled Avengers, right? And so... Some context is required if those of you have not followed the sort of Marvel Cinematic Universe. The main villain in Endgame and really the whole of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Thanos. He's uh, the big bad, so to speak. And in the previous movie, he's obtained six Infinity Stones. And with these Infinity Stones, uh, he has almost, almost absolute power, 
okay? And with that power, Thanos has wiped away half of all, of ex all life in the universe with one snap. Okay, and that was the end of the previous movie, Avengers Infinity War. So half of, half of all the universe, all life in the universe is gone, right? And so if we fast forward to Endgame, the superheroes that survive the snap have to come, back, have to, come to terms with their failure. They struggle with the idea that their mistakes and their lack of power had such a devastating impact on the universe. And as a result of their rage and grief of watching sort of loved ones turn to dust before their very eyes, they, we see them go to unparalleled lengths to bring down Thanos in Avengers Endgame, to exact vengeance against him. And they weren't able to stop him um, the first time, but they will surely avenge those that were lost, sort of in the words of the first Avengers movie, right? And you know, as we, as we watched these movies, Avengers Endgame was the largest grossing box office of, in history, right? And we are captivated by these stories of vengeance and of justice. Um, we love the idea of villains getting what they deserve, of receiving their just desserts, so to speak. And it's just really satisfying to watch justice being served. It just seems so right in the midst of life where so many things seem to go wrong. And that's surely how the people of God feel about, as they sort of read our passage this morning. You see, chapters 48 to 51 are all about judgment being pronounced upon God's foreign enemies. Finally, those filthy pagans are getting what they deserve after centuries and decades of causing trouble and conflict and just le trying to seduce people into sin and all of that. You know, and we started last week with Tom's sermon um, with Egypt and Philistia. And this week, we get God's judgment on a whole slew of people. We get Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and Babylon. And then Judah way at the end, <laughs> okay? But the big question is why? Why does God judge these nations so harshly? I mean, we've, we've sort of we're going to sort of skip over all the, like, the judgment. Basically, the Lord's going to wipe them out, right? And it's, like, terrible language that you're just like, wow. But why? Why does the Lord judge them so harshly? Why does he pronounce death, destruction, and desolation upon them? I mean, surely their conflicts with God's people over the years sort of figure into that. But it doesn't seem like it's enough to sort of warrant, like, unending desolation, especially with Babylon. I mean, if it's just over the conflict with the Israelites, Babylon has a ready excuse in that they were God's chosen instrument of destruction and of judgment on the Israelites. And so they're really sort of doing it all at the behest of the Lord, sort of, right? No, the main reason why God judges the nation so harshly is not because they're, they're not just because they're enemies of God's people, but because they're enemies of God himself pretty straightforward, right? But why? Why are they, what makes them enemies of God? Well, it seems like they're enemies of God himself because they don't trust in him. They put their faith in other things, and that's what makes them enemies of God. So let's look at each of these nations and look quickly at what they trusted in. So let's start with Moab. 
Chapter 48, verse 7. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken. So that's trusting in your own goodness, your own self-righteousness, and in your wealth, which really just points to what we find in verse 48 and 20, uh, chapter 48, verse 29. And we have heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride, and his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. So pride, that's what they trust in, themselves. So what about Amon? Chapter 49, verse 4. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasure, saying, who will come against me? Well, that sounds like trusting in wealth. What about Edom? Chapter 49, verse 7. Is wisdom no more in Timon? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom perished or vanished? So Edom had a reputation for practical intelligence. They were wise people. Um, they had common sense, so to speak, and they put it to good use. And so they would trust in their own cleverness. And if cleverness wasn't enough, Edom had some impressive fortresses and defenses. There's a reason why Jeremiah called them the ones who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagle, um, which would seemingly be out of the reach of danger. I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Well, what about Damascus? They trusted in the fame of their great city. Look with me at chapter 49, verse 25. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Okay, let's move on to Kedar and Hazor. They were nomadic peoples, and so they sort of trusted in themselves and trusted the fact that they could, like, run away at a moment's notice. And so they felt secure in their independence and in their freedom. They weren't tied down to sort of def defensible or indefensible positions, um, but they could just sort of get up and go wherever they wanted. And so 40, chapter 49, verse 31 says, Rise up, advance against a nation at ease that dwells securely, declares the Lord, that has no gates or bars that dwells alone. So they're secure and trust in their isolation, their privacy, and their freedom. And then we get to Elam in uh, verse 35 of chapter 49, which sort of sums it all up for them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. So I wonder what they trust in. Their military prowess. I mean, they were renowned for their skill with the bow. And then we get to the big one. Two whole chapters devoted to the judgment of Babylon. And why? Because their sin, while coming to the scene sort of relatively late, all these other nations had been around a long time and had been sort of troubling Israel for Israel and Judah for ages and ages and ages. Babylon is sort of Johnny-come-lately to the scene. But their sin is huge. It's sort of like a combination of all the other ones combined, right? And this is why Babylon is used symbolically in the book of Revelation as a stand-in for all things anti-God, right? So listen to this passage starting in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 29. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, and camp around her. Let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds, due to her according to all that she has done. For she has proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed on that day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. 
The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive, captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause, that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the diviners, that they may become fools. A sword against her warriors, that they may be destroyed. A sword against her horses and against her chariots, against all the foreign troops in her midst, that they may become women. A sword against all her treasures, that they may be plundered. A drought against her waters, that they may be dried up. For it is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. I mean, just in these nine verses, within the context of two whole chapters, we see that Babylon is a kingdom that places its trust in just about everything except for the Lord. I mean, if we just go through these nine verses, we can see that they proudly defied the Lord, and so she was proudful in her own strength. She, gives cap- she takes captives and refuses to let them go, which sort of gives us shades of the exodus and the defiance, that Pharaoh, uh, the defiance of Pharaoh refusing to let God's people go. And then we get to that repetitive section about the sword against fill-in-the-blank, right? It's like a sword against, a sword against, a sword against. I mean, we can go down that list and we can see what they're trusting in. They trust in their officials and wise men, in the powerful government. They trust in the practice of divination, which is listening to spirits. They trust in warriors and cavalry and chariots and, for us, like guns and tanks and our military and all of that, right? And they trust in their treasures. They trust in their geography even. Located in the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, they had a lot to boast about. They were rich. And finally, they trust in their idols. And now you might be thinking, oh, Frank, that's not really so bad. I mean, is it so bad that the Lord has to make them a perpetual waste as he does in, as he says in uh, chapter 51, verse 26? And to that I say this, let's take a moment to think about idolatry and exactly what it says to the Lord. When we turn to idols or anything else other than the Lord for our security and happiness, what do we say? We're saying that this created thing is better than you. That this created thing is more capable of giving me what I want than you are. And then to, to think about who you're saying that to. You're saying that to the Lord God Almighty, maker of that created thing that you're trusting in, to say that to the source of all goodness, joy, and love, to say that to the only being in existence that is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor, who absolutely deserves all of our trust, worship, and hope. And then you begin to be like, ooh, that, to, to trust in that idol seems a little ridiculous, right? I mean, how insulting can we be? It's, and it's not just sort of an innocent snub against his character. You see, his character, who he is, demands, demands our everything. And when we don't give it to him, it's a big deal. It's outrageous. It's criminal even. I mean, when we don't give our proper due to sort of eminent figures in society, it's a big deal. Even in our own sort of workplaces, 
right? Imagine disrespecting the CEO of your company. How's that going to go? Not well, right? I mean, it's going to cause some li big life-changing sort of consequences if you dis sort of disrespect your CEO. How much more if you disrespect the God of the universe, right? And you can see now how terrible I our idolatry really is. When we think about who we're disrespecting, it just makes it really cringeworthy. And so we can say that God is justified, right, and good to give people their proper judgment for their idolatry, for not giving him their due, for not putting their trust in him. And so destruction is what sinners deserve. Destruction is what idolaters de deserve. And remember, we love these stories of vengeance and of justice, right? We love watching the villain getting, getting what they deserve. We watch, love to watch sort of hopefully Thanos getting what he deserves. And so we're tempted, as God's people would have been, to cheer the destruction of these enemies of God. And I, but I hope you noticed that I said chapters 48 to 51 proclaim God's justice upon God's enemies. Jeremiah has 52 chapters. Chapter 52 is all about the fall of Jerusalem and a detailed account of how the Babylonians plundered the temple. It is judgment in detail upon Judah. And it's only fitting, right? Jeremiah has spent like the majority of the book. We only get like six chapters for all the other nations and what, 68, uh, 52 minus six is what, 46? Is that my math right? right? 46 chapters of sin of Judah, right? And so it's only, it's only right to remind the Jews, that where they stand. And they don't stand with the Lord in judgment. They stand right next to the nations in their sin. But what about us? Right? That's the big question. What about us? Where do we stand? Most of us think of ourselves as good, decent people. And for those of you that are like thinking, I'm Reformed, I'm a Presbyterian, I've gone to church a long time, I know I'm a sinner, right? But we don't tend to live like it. We don't tend to think about just how bad our sin is. We go to church, we try to be upstanding people, upstanding citizens, good neighbors, good parents. We think of ourselves as fairly nice people. But when we take a good look at who we are and what we've done and what we actually place our trust in, we begin to sort of see the idolatry sort of pop out in our life. Especially in this area, what do we put our trust in? Wisdom. Almost all of you in this room are highly educated, okay? Even you middle schoolers and high schoolers, relative to the world, you guys are fairly well educated. We place a lot of sort of, we place a lot of emphasis on our wisdom. We place a lot of trust in our being smart and having good sense. What about our wealth? We're all very, very, very wealthy. And when sort of the times get a little tight, we freak out. That tells us about what we trust in. It tells us sort of where our heart is, where we find our security. And then the big one in this area is competence, 
right? Probably one of the worst things that we can do is be like, oh, you can't handle that. You can't do that. You aren't capable. And you're like, oh, let me just show you, right? And all of that, what does all of that point to? It points to the same problem that Moab and Babylon and all these other nations have. It points to our pride. That we trust in ourselves and what we have and what we can make, right? Wealth is really a trust in ourselves to make enough money to provide for ourselves, right? It all points to pride. And sure, we aren't overt enemies of God. We aren't going out, like, laying waste to people like the nations were in Jeremiah's time. But we absolutely, absolutely are enemies of God, just like they were. Sinners in our, entire, in our very being. That's who we are. We are sinners. And that's all very sobering, right? Not particularly cheerful. I mean, coming face-to-face -face with our sin is no fun. And when we realize the judgment that comes with that sin, it's even less fun. I mean, who really looks forward to the idea that the Lord's wrath is going to be poured out upon you. What's really bad is the shame of it. When you realize that you've done something wrong, something terribly wrong, and you can't get away from it because it's who you are. And it says something about what you're capable of. And so let me tell you a story to illustrate what I mean and to hopefully move us to something a little bit more cheerful and a little bit more hopeful. When I was in seminary, a group of us had to go to Catholic University of America, um, which is in sort of Northeast DC. And I had never driven around that part of the district, and we spent the whole day there using their library to re research sort of this theological paper that I had to write. And as we were coming out, headed home, I, it's like gray and kind of dreary, I'm trying to get my bearings, and I'm driving, and one of my good friends is sitting next to me in the car, and what, do you, what happens? I'm driving, and suddenly traffic starts pulling out from the side street. I'm like, what's going on? So I try to like bump over to the left and miss the first car, but then get T-boned by the second car. I spin, collect a car that's waiting at, at the light, which I had completely missed, and I'd run a red. And thankfully, we weren't going super fast, and everybody was okay, but my car was totaled and I had caused damage to two other cars and scared the wits out of everybody, and I would really endangered the life of my friend who was sitting in the passenger seat because that's where uh, we got hit. And I, I just remember sitting there after everybody had sort of ascertained that everybody was okay and the only thing that was damaged was cars and like days, <laughs> right, and schedules. Um, I remember sitting there on the, on the pavement, on the sidewalk, saying over and over again, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. Because if there's one thing that I pride myself in, it's driving. <laughs> or um, it's actually being a really good friend and being reliable and being safe for my friends. And I endangered the life of my friend who is in the passenger seat. seat. I couldn't believe that I did that. And I couldn't get away from it. The shame of having endangered lives, destroyed schedules, destroyed cars. 
It was all on me. But everybody was exceedingly gracious to me and kind. And that word grace is apt for what they were doing because they had me dead to rights. I had run a red. I had done something, in fact, criminal. And so it would have been just for them to chew me out and to sue me into next Tuesday. It probably not actually sue me into next Tuesday, but you know, you know what I mean, right? They could have definitely taken their vengeance, and they probably should have taken their vengeance, but they didn't. They gave me grace by checking in on me, by consoling me, by reminding me that everybody was okay, and that's what insurance is for, right? And the Lord offers us grace too. In the midst of all of this judgment, of all of this sort of shame and grossness, we see some nuggets of grace that come out of, seem to come out of nowhere. I mean, to Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Elam, Edom and Elam, these nuggets are literally just one verse at the end of their whole section of judgment. For Moab in particular, it's like, I'm going to destroy you, bring terror upon you, drive you out so that your, your cities will be a wasteland forever for 46 verses. And then the 47th verse is, yet I will restore the fortune of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. And you're like, whoa, 46 verses. And then how does this happen? And it seems to go this way with a ton of judgment and destruction and then one verse of hope. To Ammon, he says, but afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. To Edom, he says, leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. To Elam, he says, but in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. And we actually saw this already this morning. If you look in your bulletin at the responsive reading, we read out of Acts and Pentecost. Um, the, the, the story of Pentecost. And who's there? Elamites. They get to see the Holy Spirit being poured, about, poured out upon the church. What a wondrous blessing that would have been to see not only the gospel being preached, but to see with their very eyes the Holy Spirit coming in and dwelling in, in his people. And then what about the two chapters concerning Babylon's judgment? We see nuggets of salvation for Judah buried in paragraphs of destruction. And so also note that the flow of sort of the text seems to assume that judgment has already happened upon Judah. And so they're sitting in the belly of the monster, awaiting deliverance, because that's what exile is. They're waiting in the belly of judgment, waiting for deliverance. And to Judah we read, in those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together. Remember, they didn't like each other very much back then. Weeping as they come in repentance. And they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. That's the big issue, right? The big issue that the Israelites had is they kept forgetting who God was, who God truly was. And God says, I, that is the Lord, will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, 
Listen very closely. Declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. And sin in Judah and none shall be found for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. For their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. For the Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. And even to the, to the evil king of Judah, Jehoiachin, the Lord gives grace in chapter 52. This is where we sort of end our text, right? Not end our sermon, but end our text. After 37 years in exile, the king of Babylon graciously freed Jehoiachin. There's that word again, grace. And so by the Lord's grace, Jehoiachin swapped chains for royal robes, and he lived the rest of his life dining at the king's table. What grace for a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And praise God, because in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Christ, who is right there in the middle of it? Jehoiachin is. An evil, evil king. And so there is grace for him. But do you remember, did you catch what we, what, we, what we read in chapter 50, verses 19 to 20? In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. And sin in Judah and none shall be found for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. We spent how many chapters talking about iniquity, talking about sin, talking about how terrible the people of God have been. And for now, now for the Lord to say in the future that he will go looking for iniquity that was so abundantly found in the, in the chapters of Jeremiah, that he will go looking for it and he won't be able to find it. That's crazy. That's amazing. And in fact, that's amazing grace, right? And so who gets rid of their sin? Who does it? Well, the Lord does. And so do you see how all of this sets up one undeniable truth, right? Both the judgment and the grace. All of it sets up one undeniable truth, that in fact, all of it is about the Lord. Because the sin is about not trusting in the Lord, and the grace is certainly only from the Lord. It's the Lord who exacts vengeance and justice for sin, and it's the Lord who gives out grace. And so that's the whole point of the whole book of Jeremiah and really all of Scripture, right? That God is both a holy God demanding of obedience to the covenant and a gracious God, saving those who don't deserve it. But we can't presume to demand grace. We can't presume that the Lord will give grace no matter what we do, right? Because that was the mistake of Israel and Judah. They thought that because they were God's chosen people, much like the church is God's people today, they could do whatever they wanted without consequence. It's as Paul writes in Romans 6, what shall then we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just sin all the more so that we would see the graciousness of the Lord? By no means. To presume upon grace, to sin more and more with the thought that Jesus has paid it all already, misses the point of grace. Grace is by definition for those who don't deserve it and those who can't demand it. Just like 
I was dead to rights in my accident, right? I had no right to ask for grace. I had no position, no footing to ask for grace. So God has each and every single one of us dead to rights in our sin. And yet God has made a way, and he has extended that grace. Praise God, right? Reading from Romans 5 this time, verse 6 to 11. For while we were still weak and dead in our transgressions, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one, who will scarcely, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I mean, that's the gospel right there. We who deserve punishment, judgment, and vengeance against us instead receive grace, salvation, reconciliation, and life. And who receives all the praise and glory? God does. Because the grace doesn't come cheap. It comes at the very price of the blood of our Lord Savior, his suffering, and his life. You see, we often think about the gospel being about us, about our salvation, about the way in which we are transformed, about the way in which what we have been delivered to, the blessings that we receive, and that misses the point. Because it's not about us. It's about the Lord. It's about who God is and what he has done for us. That really just points back to who God is. And so the only thing that we bring to the gospel is our unworthiness, our wretchedness, our sin. And all of that only serves to highlight who God is. Not only that he's holy and de demands justice for our wretchedness and our sin, but also that he's gracious, right? And it serves to highlight what a great salvation that we have in the gospel and in Christ Jesus. And so the book of Jeremiah, with all of its judgments and all of its heaviness and, and all of that, the gospel shines a spotlight not upon us, but upon the absolute worthiness and goodness of the Lord. That's what the whole book is about. And so we'll end, ba end back where we started with Avengers Endgame. In the story, we're Thanos, evil to the core, utterly convinced in the righteousness of our evil, and the superheroes. Who are they? Who plays the superhero? Well, the Lord does. But the superheroes only hint at how awesome the Lord is. Because while the Avengers go to great lengths to avenge and to defeat, the Lord actually went to great lengths to transform. It's like the Lord looked at Thanos and all of his villainy and all of his evil, and he went to great lengths to make him one of the good guys. And so this morning, there are some big questions as we sort of depart, as we go, as we wrap up. How big is the story of the gospel in your life? 
Do you look at your sin and marvel at the depths that the Lord has saved you from? Does looking at your sin cause you to wallow in it? Oh, I'm such a worm. How terrible am I? Or does it move you to worship the one who saw your sin and still redeemed you? This morning, we have just that chance to look at our sin, to confess it, and to bring it to the Lord in worship. And that's what we do at this table that we're going to partake of in just a, a few moments. So let us come repentant, knowing that we don't deserve grace, and put our trust in him, for he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Final chapters in Jeremiah, we thank you for the whole book of Jeremiah. We thank you for giving us a long, hard look at our sin this past year. And we ask that you would continue to remind us of our sin in the years, weeks, and days to come. But Lord, we come in wonder at your goodness and grace. We who are undeserving of anything, who are dead to rights in our sin, we are undeserving of anything but your wrath. And yet you sent your son to die for us. Lord, what a great gospel that is. To win us for yourself, to transform us by your blood from enemies into heirs. Father, we come before you to worship you to confess our sins and to rest in the salvation that you offer. Would you be magnified in our hearts and our minds? We pray this all in the name of our gracious, wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to the Lord's Supper, and so if you would pull out your purple insert as well as your gray one. The gray one is uh, guidelines for uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper, but it also gives you instructions for how to do this if you aren't taking the Lord's Supper. Please read that and, uh, and um, abide by it. Uh, <laughs> um, so now as we come to uh, the Lord's table, we call ourselves with, the, uh, with Scripture to, to come and to worship uh, the Lord from his table. We'll be doing so from uh, Psalm 29, I'll be reading uh, the minister, and you will be the people. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And so we need instruction for what we're doing so that we understand what, what it is that we're celebrating when we come to the Lord's table. And so we read from Scripture uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, instructions for what we're doing. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I've asked Mark Riss to come up and give words for sinners. Phoebe and I went to a wedding this summer, and at that wedding, uh, I was reminded of this moment, this covenant moment that we enjoy and participate in as the Lord's people. Um, we were guests at this wedding, and like you all, we sat and we enjoyed the wedding. We um, prayed, we sang, we watched the bride and the groom come forward, and it was great. It was joyful, but there was a moment in that time when it wasn't for us. It was the time of covenant, of the giving of covenant vows. And at that moment, the giving of the rings and the giving of the vows, that was between the beloved and the loved. It wasn't for us. It was for them. And so I'm here just um, as a servant of the Lord to remind you that this time of covenant is for the love uh, the Lord and his beloved. And so we encourage you, we ask you, we say, run up front. This is the table of the Lord for you if you are the Lord's. And if you're not the Lord's, what that means, if you do not um, confess that Jesus is Lord, and if you do not confess that Jesus is your Lord, and if you do not believe that God has raised him from the dead, then this is not the covenant sign for you. This is, uh, please do not take of the Lord's Supper. Um, but we ask you to come down. We ask you to, as you see all this, to contemplate what do you believe. We ask you to see the Lord repent and believe. But more importantly, this table, or as importantly, this table is for the beloved. It is our Lord saying to his people, come. Come, bring me you. Bring me your sin. Bring me your hurt. Bring me your tears. Bring me your joy. Bring me your laughter. Bring me everything of you. Come, and I will give you all of me. So one of your elders... Uh... He's called you to come in repentance, um, for that's what we need to do, um, to turn away from the wretchedness of our sin and turn to the most worthy um, one, the Lord Jesus, uh, coming in not only repentance, but also in redemption, knowing that we have been redeemed. So 
And we will come confessing our sins, um, first privately and then together with the, the confession that is printed in your insert. So let us take uh, a moment to confess privately our sins and turn to him in repentance. Now pray with me the confession printed in your insert and on the screen behind me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we in you grace, grace, promise forgiveness for sins to all those who with sincere repentance and true faith turn to him. Have mercy on us, pardon and deliver us from all our sins. Confirm and strengthen us in all our goodness bring us to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And as we confess our sins, we are assured of pardon, rem reminding ourselves that we have um, forgiveness in Christ. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, God, made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. So let us pray. Father, we do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so, uh, so to eat the bread of life of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink the cup of salvation, that the debt of our sinful selves may be satisfied by his broken body and the filth of our souls washed clean through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. And so as we come to the table, the Lord says that we declare his death and his resurrection, and so we are declaring what we believe in. And so it is right for us to declare doctrines of truth. And so we do so using the Apostles' Creed. So, Christian, what do you believe in? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders and deacons that will be coming to serve. And as they come up, uh, a quick word of instruction of how this is going to work. As you can see, we have two tables, and we've divided the front and the back. 
Um, if you are seated in the front, please come down this aisle, uh, receive the elements here. There will be, pe um, there will be people, deacons and elders, uh, across the front to pray with you if you would so desire. Um, you don't have to, but we would encourage you to. Um, even if you aren't going to take of the elements, um, the bread and the, and the cup, uh, please do come down. We would love to pray with you. Um, the same will work, uh, and then you can uh, go back to your seats up this aisle, and um, there's a transit to the last row. Um, in the back, you'll come down to this table, down this aisle, and um, go back to your seats that way. Um, but now, uh, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, that take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for the call to come in repentance, knowing that we have pardon in your blood. Lord, thank you for these elements which give us a tangible reminder of the reality of the gospel, that as sure as we eat and as we drink, we have been united to you uh, by your blood, by your Holy Spirit, that we will never depart from you. Lord, would you remind us of all these great truths that our salvation, our everything is because of you. And for, Lord, you alone are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. So come, take, and eat. Now hear now the blessing of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.